pleased now to welcome an old friend to this podcast, Simon Dingle, former tech journalist, entrepreneur, crypto expert, and general uber geek. I think I can describe you like that, Simon, uh, as well as his co-conspirator in a new book, Stephen Boyke Sidley, who is an award-winning novelist, playwright, and columnist, who also happens to know a hell of a lot about finance and technology. Uh, together, Simon and Stephen have authored a new book. I've got a copy of it here. It's called Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. That's uh, quite a title, and I'm really looking forward to unpacking this book in a little bit of detail with our two authors now. Um, but first of all, let me welcome you both uh, to the podcast. How are you both doing? And uh, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Duncan. Lovely to speak with you again. Thanks, guys. So um, let me... Um, let me start. Let me let me ask you, Simon. What, uh, first, what, why did you write this book? Because Stephen asked me if, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I did with him. No, it's uh, you know, Duncan. I the last time we spoke on on your show, I had just put out my first book in Math We Trust, um, which yes. was all of I guess four years ago now. Wow. Wow. And flies. and what what's really amazing is is how outdated that book seems now. You know, four years is is nothing in the greater scheme of things, but in the crypto industry. That's an eternity, you know. Um, and and back then, the the term DeFi hadn't even been coined coined yet. So while we had notions of decentralized finance and some of the first protocols, etc., there wasn't even a word for it. Um, and uh, you know, I think it was really Stephen who put all the pieces together and said, "There's, you know, there's somebody needs to converge on the story around what's happening with decentralized finance, what it means for our existing financial institutions." And really explain it in a way that's approachable, um, succinct, that mm. makes sense because there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding around. So I thought that was a brilliant idea. Um, and that was the beginning of the collaboration that turned into this book. Okay. I know, Simon, you've been involved in the crypto space for some time. You were involved with Luno and various other projects over the years. And uh, and crypto has been a, a passion of yours for quite some time. But Stephen, you're, a, you're a, a novelist and a playwright. How does a novelist and a playwright end up in, in the DeFi and crypto space? Well, I have two sort of contradictory and uh, uh, legs to my life. The, the one is writing where I've been writing novels and plays and columns for quite a long time. But I, I also was the group chief technology officer worldwide for Anglo-American and Altec, oh. and then went into mergers and acquisitions. So I have, I have quite a, and I have an MS in computer science. So I understand the stuff from the bit level up. Right. So it seemed like a, a, a sort of a, a nice combination to, to take on this particular subject. I wanted to, to add to what Simon said. It was, it was clear to both Simon and I uh, as early as 2020 that this thing called DeFi, this, this decentralized finance, was um, going to be a transformative technology and perhaps even a more transformative technology than Bitcoin. And in early 2000 and 2021, we did a sort of an unscientific poll of friends of ours who were in the banking industry, including people up at the top at, at board level and exco level. None of them had ever heard of DeFi. Right. Which, which, which both shocked me and was a, a, a catalyst for writing the book. By June 2020, everybody had heard of it, thought it was poison and kryptonite and <laughs> it would blow up. By January 2022, every single major bank in the world was in it. Right, so the right. Timing was, the timing was about right. Well, well, the good news is I have heard of, of DeFi. <laughs> I'm no expert on the subject, though. I, I have dabbled in cryptocurrencies in, 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 in the past few years and actually made quite a bit of money out of Bitcoin. 
Um, but I can't can't tell you that I'm any expert on DeFi, although I am. I have learned a lot reading your, your book, and it, I, I re- highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in the space. It's well written. It's in simple language that uh, even idiots like me can understand, and uh, it really sort of delves into how um, how this technology could actually upend the world. Um, and it, it's it's a fascinating reading. So I highly recommend going to check out um, check out this new book. Where is it available, by the way? Uh, can you get it in local bookstores? It's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's on five continents. It's in everywhere from exclusive to the smaller bookstores. It's on Loot, Take a Lot, Amazon, and then all the major countries in the world. It's a global yeah. release out of London. Fantastic. I believe there's an audible version as well for people like me yeah. who struggle to struggle it's with the audible answer. version, Kindle version, and a print version. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. So I'm really good at unpacking what the, the concepts are here, but I want to I want to delve into them in, in some detail in this. Um, podcast, but let's start with brass tacks, Simon. Um, Decentralized finance or DeFi, what is it exactly and why is it so important? Well, really, we're talking about taking everything that happens in the traditional financial world and decentralizing it using this force multiplier or blockchain technology um, or crypto. Uh, And really, for me, that is in the broader sense is the internet doing to money what it's done to just about every other industry. You know, we, mm-hmm. we saw the internet brought to bear on the media industry and what that meant for newspapers. We saw it brought to bear on photography and what that meant for Kodak, you know, and, yeah. and the traditional ways that we used to share photography. We saw it brought to bear on communications and what that meant for our traditional postal systems, et cetera. And so you, you've really seen the internet impact every industry on earth that, that deals with information transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but money was kind of late to the game, if you will. Um, and for me, crypto is really the internet doing to money what it's done to all these other industries. So um, what happened to, to newspapers? I've got news for the banks because their, their turn has come. <laughs> um, and, and, and so to me, that, that, that really is the headline. And, and decentralized finance or DeFi is just a term that captures us using the internet to do to the financial industry what it's done to everything else. Right. So it sounds like so, bad news if you're a banker, but I want to I get into that in, 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 in quite a bit of detail. But uh, Stephen, sorry, you wanted to say something? Yeah. So, so w- when DeFi started, it was um, sort of an, somewhat an, both an accident and an inevitability of history. What really started the whole thing is that Vitalik Buterin, who for those of your uh, viewers don't know him, is a skinny Russian-Canadian teenager who started the Ethereum blockchain. And the Bitcoin blockchain had been running for about four or five years when he started it. And his big idea was to add a programming language on top of a blockchain-like system. He called right. it Ethereum, put a programming language on top of it. And some of you may have heard of the term smart contracts, which are just simply small programs written in that programming language. And he just simply presented this to the world. He said, well, now I've also got a blockchain called Ethereum, but I've also got a programming language. So you out there from a teenager in your garage, all the way up to a big corporation, please dream up what you would like to build on this thing. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that the industries with the biggest targets on the back were the financial industries, the banks, insurance companies, the stock exchanges. And people started building a smarter, better, faster, cheaper version of the services that we know, loans, deposits, insurance, uh, how to buy and sell stocks, cheaper, faster, better, uh, and fairer. Um, What happened over and above that, because I wanted to add one more definition to what DeFi is, is that a bunch of um, 
services, a bunch of projects arose that offered financial services that are simply unavailable in the traditional world. So there were some that did a better job, a cheaper job, a fairer job, faster job of traditional services. And there were some that were brand new services that the traditional world has no way to compete with. And perhaps we can get into that in a little bit. Sure. sure. So, so I wanted to touch on, 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 on something I picked up in the book. You, you, you speak about um, the concepts of trustlessness, decentralization, and permissionlessness as key to this new financial world. Um, and you also say that this is the opposite of the world of, of financial institutions as we, as we know them. Can you just expand a little bit, Stephen, what, what you mean by that? So uh, this is going, I'm going to do this quickly. I'm going to start off and scare you because it's going to think like I'm going to wrangle, ramble for a couple of hours. But the first bank started in about 1200. There's the Medici banks and the Benici banks took in people's jewelry and, 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 and other valuables while the soldiers went off to war. And at a certain point, a little bit later, they, they, they felt they could loan out some of these valuables and charge people for the loan. And therefore, you had the beginnings of the banks, which was deposits and loans. And that Medici bank was trusted. It was a trusted entity because the Medici's had a name, they had a reputation, they weren't going to steal your money. And banks have grown around the concept of trust us. The concept of a blockchain is that it's built out of mathematics. You do not have to trust mathematics. It simply is. And the parts of uh, finance where finicure happens, traditional finance, where theft happens or loss happens, is usually the mistake of human error because humans are not trustworthy. They are fallible. Mm -hmm. They can be bribed. They can be threatened. A mathematical uh, algorithm requires none of that. It can't be bribed. It can't be threatened. It can't fail because it's tired. So the word trustlessness is applied to the fact that the blockchain is built out of a set of mathematics. It's very complex mathematics. It has to do with cryptography and digital signatures and all sorts of things. But for the purposes of explanation, it does not have to be trusted, and therefore it is trustless. Permissionlessness, which is the next one that you mentioned, is that you do not need permission from anybody to interact with these DeFi protocols. You do not need KYC. You do not need to have an ID. You do not need to put your photograph on. You don't have to go through Rika. You don't need the permission. I'll give you a very good example of this. In a stock exchange, if you sign up to a stock exchange, like many of us are, and you want to trade um, large amounts of money, you're not allowed to unless you can prove to the regulator that you are worth a lot of money. So if you want to do 10 million rand trades, I, I wish I was in that position, I'm not. You've got to prove that you have that money to trade. So permission is in many levels, permission to enter the system, permission to trade certain levels. We're treated like children by the traditional finance system. You need none of those provisions in DeFi. The first one, you, the last one you mentioned was decentralization. Yeah. It is the nature of things that because of those Medici banks and the way that those industries grew, everything coalesced on a center because the center could be trusted to handle your money and give it back to you when you needed it back. And that centralization became so watertight, so hermetically sealed that you couldn't look under the hood and take a look inside and say, I, I, I want to see what goes on here. Why is my interest rate so, so high on my loan? Why is it so low on my deposit? Why are my transaction fees so high? You don't get to ask those questions in the bank. If you go to a bank with 200 rand to open a deposit, they'll treat you one way. If you go with 200 million rand to open a deposit, you get taken to Arabella and, and, and on the yacht. <laughs> Money is not equal for everybody. The bank, is, the bank is an asymmetrical box which treats people differently. Decentralization basically disassembles that entire trope because 
the copy of the thing that provides you with the service is sent out to many, many, many computers around the world. That's the basis of the blockchain. Sure. You can see it. It's open. It's open source. It can be checked. It can't be fooled. It can't be counterfeited. It can't be upended. That is what decentralization does for you. So I'm going to read a little bit from the um, prologue of uh, Beyond Bitcoin, because I, I think this really summarizes um, a, a lot of what you are um, arguing in this book. And then maybe we can unpack that in a little bit of detail. So if you just bear with me for a second, I, I really thought this was interesting. And I'd like to, I'd like to, to, to read this particular section. You state that great one, great fortunes will be made and lost in its being DeFi's wake. Uh, stayed and storied institutions will have to shed warm skins, I like this description, in a painful shudder of reinvention. Two, it will make the starting, the startling trillion dollar rise of Bitcoin look pedestrian by comparison. And Stephen, you've already mentioned that. Uh, three, it will disrupt and displace fine and respectable companies, if not entire industries, along with careers and skills. Four, it will make life easier and fairer and less expensive for the rest of us. Uh, and I want to delve a bit further into that as well. You've touched on it already, Stephen. Five, it will affect everyone on earth who has ever had a bank account, a credit card, a debit card, a loan, an insurance policy, or a lawyer, to say nothing of investors, artists, and traders, and anyone else who would wish to transact globally without the inertia of inscrutable and private bureaucracies. And six, and lastly, it will reinforce the cogs and wheels in the engines of trust. Um, in other words, you guys believe that this is going to change the world fundamentally, reinvent capitalism, possibly undermine the nation state, and forever change the affairs of man. Um, Simon, isn't this the sort of stuff that leads to world wars? <laughs> Not necessarily, no. I think, um, you know, as, as with most big shifts in, in human history, we like to think of them as revolutions, but they're actually evolutions because okay. behaviorally these things take a very long time to, to adopt and there are various analogies one could draw. I think one close to you on my heart, Duncan, would be if you look at the rise of open source software in Linux. Sure. If, you cost, if we cast our minds back to the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm not sure if you remember Microsoft's advertising campaign called Get the Facts, where yes. they uh, spent millions of dollars putting up billboards and spreading advertorial around how rubbish Linux was and, and how if you adopted Linux in your organization, that you, you would have a, a support problem and it wasn't secure, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of FUD, really. Um, skip forward two decades and, and arguably the best place to get Linux on the planet right now is by downloading Windows 11 because you'll get the Windows subsystem for Linux and the full <laughs> Linux kernel as part of Windows. So, you know, we, there's those, those, those phases of a, of a revolution that we always talk about where first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then mm. they fight you, and then you win. And, and Linux and open source have kind of made it through that, that uh, you know, that, that whole process. And now the Microsofts of the world have embraced it. But there were a lot of companies who, like Microsoft, were resisting you know, Linux and open source software two decades ago and dug their heels in and refused to acknowledge where things were going. And they really aren't around anymore. We don't really talk about them. <laughs> you know, they're now selling like databases at best. Um, <laughs> And uh, and you know who I'm alluding to, but I do. but I, I really think I really think that's 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 the story of of new disruptive technology and how it gets imbibed, if you will, by an industry. And what what blockchain is at right now is somewhere between the laugh at us and fight us stage. <laughs> um, but we're seeing some financial institutions who see the writing on the wall, like Microsoft eventually did, yeah. and are incorporating this new technology and looking at what it means for them. 
And so as one example, Visa is experimenting with settlement using the USDC stablecoin on Ethereum, for example. Um, you know, a lot of major banks now have um, cryptocurrency teams looking at how they can do their own products in the space. Um, you know, uh, on the extreme end, you've got banks like Silvergate in, in the US that has full-on crypto custody and exchange solutions as part of their, their conventional banking. So, you know, our, our, the title of our book, ending with the end of banks, is, is provocative. If sure. we had made it the end of banking as you know it, but it's more complicated than that, it wouldn't have made for a very catchy sort of so many books. books. <laughs> 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 but, but that's really what we what's implied is it's the end of banking as we know it. So, you know, it is the end of banks. It is the end of banks the way you know them. That doesn't mean that intermediaries are going away. It doesn't right. mean that you know the brands that we know in the banking sector today are, are necessarily going away, but it means that they're now forced to, to change. Um, just like there were newspapers that resisted the internet and they're gone now, and there were others that embraced it and they're still around, um, like the New York Times. And there are new brands that have come up, like Monocle in the world of newspapers, mm -hmm. that really were born into the 21st you know, internet century. Yeah. Um, and have redefined what it means to be a newspaper. Well, now we've got banks like Investec that are embracing cryptocurrency and looking at how they can launch their own services. We've got others with red and green logos that are, are fighting the tide. And who knows, maybe they won't be around two decades from now. And we've got brand new institutions like Luno and Vela that are redefining what it means to be a financial institution or a trusted intermediary. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're trying to to capture in that line, <laughs> that very provocative yeah. line about the end of banks is that the sure. world is changing and there are companies that get it and are, are with the program and there are others that are, are fighting and probably won't be around for much longer. Yeah. I mean, it's clear, it's clear that both of you believe that a, a big disruption is coming, a major disruption is coming. But Stephen, maybe, maybe if you can just unpack for us over the next couple of minutes what you, how, how you see that disruption unfolding. Um, what, what's it going to look like and who's going to win and who's going to lose? Okay, so as I said earlier, the, the three biggest financial sectors, perhaps four that are under threat are, um, I should add a fifth one, but let me start with the first four, are the banks, the mm -hmm. people who manage your money, who allow you to deposit, to loan money out to you, who facilitate your payments, who sell you other bits and pieces, but mainly who handle your loans and deposits. That's at the core of the bank. The, the spread of, of interest rates between loans and deposits or between credit and debit in a bank is their profit to a large extent. And the second is um, the exchanges where you pay a lot of money to brokers in the middle who carve off pieces of the, the, um, the transaction, find you a buyer for the stock that you want to sell and, and uh, the trade is made. There are now DeFi exchanges, a lot of them, they're called DEXs, decentralized exchanges, in which the commissions are orders of magnitude less than the commission that you'll find on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange or through a broker that attaches to the stock exchange. The third one um, is uh, insurance companies. As there's a whole juggernaut coming at the insurance companies because in terms of an asymmetric black box, Insurance companies are even worse than the banks. You have no idea what goes on there. You can't see the actuarial tables. You can't argue the claim, uh, arg sorry, argue the premiums that you're being charged. You have to argue the claim. If they have doubt about it, there are very asymmetric black boxes. Mm -hmm. And the, the insurance DeFi projects like Nexus Mutual, to which we devote a chapter in the book, has taken this concept of decentralized permissionless 
trustless blockchain and implemented an insurance solution, which is absolutely radical compared to what has been in place for hundreds of years. The fourth area of the derivatives markets, I mention them only because the derivatives markets are uh, the largest financial market in the world by one measure, which we mentioned in the book. It is a quadrillion dollars large, the biggest financial market in the world in terms of value locked. And the derivatives markets are falling very neatly into the DeFi protocols. And there is a DeFi protocol called Didix and another one called Synthetics that deal with, with derivatives. And the fifth one who has much to lose is the nation state. And that's where the complexity mm-hmm. lies. I'm not fully answering your question, but just let me cover the fifth one. Yeah. Um, it is the central banks who control the money supply in a country in order so that prices don't rise and employment. The two jobs of a central bank is keep prices down, keep employment high. That's, mm-hmm. Those are the two jobs and the tools that they have to do that is raise and lower interest rates or inject or retract liquidity in the market. Those right. are the two tools that they have. They see a parallel system being born, stable yep. coins particularly, Yep. And they are trying to react now with things called central bank digital currencies, which, which Simon can get into in a little while, but they have a lot to lose. So your original question, which I return to now, is where are these disruptions happening and how? They're happening specifically in those industries with DeFi. There are other industries which are getting displaced, upended, and upset by the NFT world, mm-hmm. not only the art market, but the entire market of ownership. Is, is changes with uh, NFT, which is simply a, a secure digital certification of ownership. It's a title deed. But leaving that aside, because that's a whole other podcast to NFTs, sure. those are the five areas where there will be disruption. And I just want to turn up the volume on what Simon said earlier. It's not a real revolution where these industries fall off the edge of the cliff because it's DeFi. It's an evolution in which they see the disruption coming. Some of them open up bring it in, make it worthwhile to the customers, keep their call centers and customer support and marketing and all the things that we love. While others say this is absolute rubbish and kryptonite, they fall off the cliffy. And you'll see quite a lot of that in the next couple of years. Interesting. So let, let me pick up on that fifth point and, and CDBCs and specific, specifically, uh, since you've mentioned it, I was going to come to it later in the discussion, but let's chat about it now. Um, th- there seems to be a bit of a, a pushback to... Um, pri- private money, if I can call it that, the rise of cryptocurrency, Simon. Um, central bank digital currency seem to me to be some sort of answer by, by nation states to compete with this private money that's emerging. How do you see this playing out? And I guess that's where my question about war came in as well, because you know, if you're starting to affect the interests of the nation state, the nation state as a monopoly over violence in many respects could kick yeah. back. Could that lead to war? I guess that's where my question on that was coming from. But but focusing on CDBCs, what what are governments trying to do? What are central banks trying to do with these things? And um, do you think at some point they're going to say, well, actually, we've got CDBCs. We don't need this private money. We're going to ban it. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's really a mixed bag, Duncan, depending on, on which central bank you, you're talking about. You right. know, in the context of China, digital renminbi is very much centered on surveillance and control and all of the things you would expect from the Chinese government. Yep. Uh, in a place like South Africa, it's a fair more, you know, far more nuanced and, and open and, and frankly, better thought through scenario, <laughs> um, more freedom loving, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, they're both bad ideas in the implementation. And, and I'll tell you why. It's that there's a fundamental misunderstanding, misunderstanding of the technology. And unfortunately, and this is, this is not really the fault of, of, of the central banks themselves, they're getting very bad advice from 
you know, would be management consultants, etc. Right. who always give terrible technology advice, no matter who it's to, because they don't understand the technology themselves. They're not involved with it. Uh, they just they just jump onto whatever the buzzword of the day is, and at the moment, <laughs> it's blockchain. So, so firstly, to to describe a, a central bank digital currency as as digital is is kind of strange because they already are. The dollar is already digital. The rand right. is already digital. You know, right. outside of the very tiny cash reserves floating around. Our currencies are already digital. You know, when the mm. South African banking system issues new rand, it's done on a computer terminal. <laughs> so I don't know how that's not digital. Um, but when it comes to implementing blockchain technology, that's just a, a, a very poor understanding of technology, because you know, as as you alluded to in an earlier question to Stephen, um, blockchain has these fundamental um, principles around being censorship-proof, permissionless, and trustless. Right. And without getting into them too deeply, because I think uh, Stephen did a good overview, um, you know, the important one is the last one, the trustlessness, mm-hmm. um, which, which doesn't mean that, um, you know, we've replaced trusted intermediaries in the system necessarily. It means that trust doesn't actually enter into it because it isn't required. Um, the, the mantra in Bitcoin is don't trust verify. Go and look at the code yourself. Go and look at the transaction ledger. It's completely transparent and you can go and see every transaction that's happened in the history of Bitcoin all the way back to the first time that Satoshi Nakamoto sent Halfini, um some Bitcoin on that famous day in 2009. It's all there. It's all transparent. So you, you don't need to trust anyone. You can go and verify it for yourself. Now, to, to create this trustless network, Create, it requires a lot of resources because banks and financial intermediaries, these are expensive businesses to run. Yeah. You know, the, the trust network in the traditional financial world consumes a lot of resources and you're not going to replace them you know, with something powered by rainbows. It, it takes a lot of resources to replace them. And so famously in Bitcoin, you've got proof of work consensus or Nakamoto consensus where we, we're using a lot of compute resources um, to replace those trusted intermediaries. Now you're, you're taking that technology designed to run without central authorities and trusted intermediaries, and you're introducing trusted intermediaries and central authorities into its network, basically making all of that compute resource redundant. Mm-hmm. So conceptually, it's just nonsensical. You know, it's like going, we need to have an internal combustion engine that runs on carrot juice. It, it can't work. It's not how internal combustion works. And so I think it's really a manifestation of how, unfortunately, um, central banks are getting bad advice and don't understand technology. They don't need a blockchain. They probably need MySQL and you know, a better right. understanding of, I don't know, whatever, whatever the, the, the latest technology is. But are they doing this because they see, they see Bitcoin and other private money, other cryptocurrencies as a threat to what they do? I don't. I, I, in part, I think, I think that's, that's true to a degree. Um, but I also see, think they see the opportunity to control more. They're regulators. Their job is yeah. to regulate. And at yeah. the heart of regulation is control. And so they see an opportunity to, to really dial that up to 11. And that scares me somewhat because if you look at what China's doing explicitly and what the others are doing implicitly, mm-hmm. that becomes an Orwellian nightmare. You know, If you speak to um, people working on these projects in South Africa, they have fantastic intent. You know, they want to stamp out corruption and they want to make welfare more streamlined and efficient. And, you know, they, so the, the intent is pure and noble. Um, but what they're creating is a very dangerous system if it falls into the wrong hands because, 
you know, now you can switch off people's bank accounts. You can decide where they can spend their money. In the context of the digital renminbi, the Chinese government is going to tie this into their social credit score. So if you've misbehaved, we can just lock your bank account or make it impossible for you to spend money on airline tickets or whatever we want to do. So as with all surveillance technology, I don't have anything, I don't have a problem with the technology itself. It's fantastic. I don't have a problem with the intent. It's noble. You know, surveillance cameras on every street corner make us all safer. They, they undeniably do. The problem is what you're enabling when it falls into the wrong hands. Yeah. Um, you know, what if the Nazis had had the ability to turn bank accounts on and off and, cre- and control where, where you were allowed to pay for things in, in, in Germany in the, the 30s and 40s? You know, it would have been a nightmare for a sector of the population that they had decided were persona non grata. So, that's what that's what concerns me. Is not what CBDCs are in their intent today, um, which is noble, but what they become uh, if mm. they're built effectively. Fortunately, none of them are. They're all a little bit ass about face at the moment, if we're honest. Well, they've been built by consultants. What do you expect, <laughs> Steve? <laughs> Stephen, um, I mean, we've seen what happened to Facebook's Libra project, um, effectively killed off by regula- regulatory scrutiny, and regulators not happy about Facebook building uh, its own private money. Um, do you, do you think that the emergence of DeFi technology could be constrained by, by regulators and by governments who are scared of what's coming? Um, yes, the word constrained is loaded because it has a kind of a negative pejorative. It, with absolute certainty, the DeFi space will be regulated uh, by governments, and right. that is not altogether a bad thing. Okay. So most of the rational people in the DeFi space are looking for rational reg- regulation. Uh, in order so that the institutions can offer these services, which are, again, better, faster, cheaper, and fairer, to citizens like us. Mm-hmm. And that sort of regulation is, is, is a requirement and a necessity of, 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 of a state. The danger is that um, the governments will see this as a way to... Um, as a way to increase their own power and decrease the power of the private citizen, which is what happens now, and use those regulations to do that. You see this in America right now with Elizabeth Warren in particular, who wants to regulate this thing to the extent to which it becomes uh, a paper tiger and is not usable and they get to see everything. As as Simon said, the whole point behind, not the whole point, one of the key ingredients of the fuel of blockchain is that you can't censor it, you can't oversee it. It is private transactions between private people, and not only private people, they are not read, they, they are not going to be identified as human beings. They are numbers that you that you carry around with you. And that's what cash is essentially. And what governments are trying to do with some governments are trying to do with the regulation is to pull that out of it and regulate it so that you have to say who you are and you can't do it privately. Part of the fuel of this whole cryptocurrency mm. thing was to be able to do this privately without any oversight, and certainly. So I, I think that regulation, you know, I have sort of a probably a, a sad and optimistic belief that, that people are, are rational and that most governments will come together and form a regulatory regime which will make sense to this technology. And if it doesn't, least, if they don't? Well, if they don't and people decide to Use the technology illegally, okay? That's if they don't. A bunch of laws are passed, a bunch of regulations are passed. They, they are irrational. It will continue because who are they going to put in jail? 
the stuff is decentralized. There are no human beings associated with. There are no corporations. There are no hierarchical organizations that you can go sue in jail. So this thing continues as a parallel and illegal thing. But I don't think that will happen. It's not in anybody's interest for that to happen, including the nation states. Including the nation state. But what, what does this actually mean, Stephen, for the nation state in the longer term? And what are the broader... And I, I know I'm kind of hopping back to the same topic again, but what are the broader geosocial and geopolitical implications of DeFi? What is it going to do to the world over the next few decades? There are, there are a whole bunch of them. You know, you can look at um, different silos. Let me just choose one, which is money flow, velocity of money. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons that banks are allowed to loan out capital multiple times, depending on, on, on the bank and, and jurisdiction, between 10 and 20 times, it's called fractional reserve banking. Okay. is they want to increase money in the economy. They want to have a lot of money flowing because it creates wealth. The blockchain settles in, in the case of, of, of Bitcoin, it's, a, it's about 10 minutes. In the case of Ethereum, it's about it's 15 seconds. In the case of some of the newer blockchains, it's much lower than that. That speed of settlement of money mm -hmm. takes out the enormous industry of party counterparty risk. There's a whole industry around counterparty risk because it doesn't settle immediately. So you have a slow movement of money because you're always waiting for the other party to settle their side and the banks, as your intermediary, ensure that settlement. With a proper blockchain um, technology supporting a financial economy, you get immediate settlement at about a thousand times the speed. I've heard on one past podcast by Caitlin Long, a thousand times the speed settlement right now. So one of the things that we do to the nation state, if it's properly regulated and properly put out there, they get a thousand times increase in the velocity of money with the wealth creation certainty that that will bring. That's just looking on, on, the, on the, the, the pure monetary side. There are other silos that you can look at, which will be vastly um, catalyzed if they do this thing properly. One is the pure innovation around this thing called cryptography. Just let me talk about that for a second. Sure. One of the unknown, um, the unknown uh, gifts of this entire technology is a, um, a series of cryptographic algorithms which were basically invented in the mid-70s, which uh, allowed um, things called digital signatures, hashing, um, uncrackable encryptions, none of the stuff existed before blockchain. I mean, there was encryption, but it's, it's at a new level now. Those technologies open up a huge slew of industries. Let me give you an example of one that, that Simon brought up in an, in, in, in an early podcast that we did, the concept of streaming money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me give you the use case, then you'll understand what streaming money is. You're walking along a dark street, and there's a, there's a street light over there. As you enter that street light, you start getting charged for the time that you're in the light. And as you drop out the other side, you stop getting charged even more than that. Somebody else walks into the street light at the same time as you. And the system, the blockchain system behind it knows this, and you split the costs of the light. All of that is enabled by this underlying plumbing and, mm -hmm. and the programmability of, 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 of uh, blockchains like Ethereum. Could go on and on, but there are many silos which get fueled and catalyzed into new industries, and those governments who realize that will take a light hand. Interesting. Interesting. So, Simon, let's get back. Let's come back to banks um, because it is the title of the book, after all. Um, you've said, you say the banks are either going to adapt to this or they're going to they're going to die. Um, but let's say the banks adapt. What do they look like in the future? What will a, what will a traditional bank of today look like in this new world of DeFi? And 
If you were uh, advising a, an F&B or a standard bank or an APSA or a, a Capitec or an Investec, um, what would you tell their management team they should be thinking about around DeFi and where their institutions are likely to be going in the coming years and coming decades? Mm. It's interesting, Duncan, because in a way, it, it takes banks back to um, what they used to be in the past, <laughs> which is a fairly simple organization that are custodians of something valuable. And okay. in this context, it would be you know storing private keys to blockchain balances on behalf of their clients. Okay. And doing and doing very little else, you know. I think we we've kind of seen this this rebundling of financial services that's been happening in a lot of the developed world, and in South Africa, we've seen banks trying to be everything from, uh, you know, cellular networks to uh, insurers to the place you get your laptop from. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is gonna is gonna start falling away <laughs> as they are forced to refocus on their core competency of of custody and trust. Um, and and I think it's really that simple. Is uh, the, I I personally don't need a, a bank for for much at the moment. Sure. Um, unfortunately, I have to pay in rands, and so I need a card that I can do that with. Mm-hmm. But if I need to take out a loan at the moment, I can take out a fully collateralized loan against the cryptocurrency that I hold. So I don't need banks for loans increasingly. Um, if I need insurance for something there's still a lot of things that I will only get underwriting from in the traditional financial world, but, but increasingly you're seeing protocols like Nexus Mutual fill that hole as well. So increasingly I don't need them for risk. Um, so, so a lot of the, the core things that a bank does, I don't need them for, including payments like the Bitcoin lightning network is, is, is just absolutely mind bogglingly good at, at replacing all of our existing payment systems. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's you know everything a good innovation has it removes steps from a process and uh, i think what what a lot of people don't understand is that removing payments from financial institutions is actually a gift for a lot of them payments are a swear word it's something they kind of have to do um, right. more for marketing than anything else but it's a terrible business you know it's very yeah. hard to make money in payments it's a, mm. it's a nightmare actually <laughs> um, i think a, i think a lot of banks would be quite happy if they weren't involved in payments and they were just custodians um as, so, so, so I think you're seeing a lot of those services being offloaded into into these networks and and to kind of uh, varying size of relief depending on which financial institution you're speaking to. <laughs> no, now, I'd no, like, I'd you, like, yes, Stephen, I'd sorry. like to just to add to that. You know, what will the banks look like in the future? There, there is a role to banks play in, in at least in the short to medium term in one important aspect. These DeFi protocols are complex, and their their um, their user interfaces are mediocre, the user experience is sometimes quite terrifying, even for people like us who know our way around this thing. If you press the wrong button, you can lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. There's all that sort of stuff. And, and just to understand some of them, because some of them are built in, you know, arcane and Rube Goldian ways and the stuff that they do is, is, is difficult to do. And you have to be somewhat of an expert in the DeFi space to go play in there. You've got to have big cojones to do this. Right. The banks will play the role of an intermediary who will guide you and do this for you or, or bank-like companies. They will say to you, listen, I've got this protocol over here. You give me your, your RANs um, and I will give you 17% return just within 10 seconds. But you don't have to worry about how it works. And I'm your trusted bank. You've trusted me for you know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. We'll get that done for you. Then the retail, particularly the retail customer, doesn't have to worry about going into the interfaces where there's strange words and jargon is never understood. For the medium term, the banks will play that role, including customer service and marketing and all the other things. 
Yeah, I think that's an important point. The, mm. the, they need to provide the user experience for a lot of these things because the reality is that most people don't have the time, patience, the interest yeah. to, to learn how to do these things themselves. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing is that banks become optional, whereas now banks are, uh, you know, they're a necessity mm. if, you're, if you're going to be a human being in, in a modern society, whereas in the future they become optional and most people will still choose to have a bank, um, but that'll because that's because they need a better user interface for the stuff, not because they, yeah. they absolutely have to have one. Are, are we kind of in the early 1990s equivalent of the internet now and then the World Wide Web yeah. came along in the mid-1990s and we're waiting for the equivalent of the World Wide Web to arrive to make all of this usable and functional and so people can really understand it? I think absolutely that's exactly, exactly accurate, yes. Yeah, you know, I and and I I often think back to to that era, uh, Duncan, of like you know nineteen ninety eight, just before the the dot com bubble burst in ninety nine, yeah. mm. and I think what people forget is that you know Apple was around back then, Amazon were around back then, Google was there, Microsoft were there. It's not like those companies went away when the bubble burst. Uh, the bubble bursting actually gave them the room to define themselves, and now they're yeah. bigger than they've ever been. You know, Apple's yeah. approaching a three trillion dollar market cap. So it's not like it's not like Apple died when the dot com bubble burst. Yeah. In a way, the bubble bursting was the beginning of the industry. It wasn't the end of it. You're right. And I think I think crypto is is running up that hill, and it's going to have its dot com moment. Um, there's now this Cambrian explosion of all of these startups and blockchains and, and protocols and projects and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and I think it's dot com moment will come. There'll be a little bit of a collapse. Mm. Uh, a lot of these projects will be driven to extinction, and a lot of them will still be around twenty years from now. And really, that'll that'll be the time in which they define themselves. But I think your analogy is exactly right. This isn't very user friendly yet. It's the wild west. Um, we're kind of camping in the desert, as Mark Shuttleworth is, is you know, famously fond of saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's a frontier town. You know, this is the gold rush. If there is going to be a bit of a bubble and a crash, where is that? Uh, where is that bubble going to inflate? Is it going to be in the value of crypto tokens? Is it going to be in uh, stock market listings uh, on, on the Nasdaq, like it was in two thousand? Where is that bubble going to inflate? All of the above, and yeah. and driven a lot by VCs, because as with the dot com bubble, they are pouring you know, more good money is chasing bad in this space than has ever been available to the world because we've printed 80% of the dollars in existence over the last two years. So we've got infinite dollars chasing finite assets. And a lot of that because of the structure of the US economy has ended up with completely clueless venture capitalists that are going to waste billions of dollars in the space and pump it up in the process. As Sorry, Stephen. Yeah, just, just to give you a feel for some numbers about this, the, 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 Dot com crash is a big word. <laughs> the reckoning that will be coming. Let me just call it that way. All right. There are somewhere around, I think, at last count, I didn't. I haven't looked for a long time. A couple of thousand cryptocurrencies out there, um, and at the top of the pile is Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana and some of the ones that some of your listeners would know. Sure. Um, sure. There are, in terms of DeFi projects, which are projects that are offering different flavors of loan deposit projects or different flavors of decentralized exchanges, even a couple of different flavors of insurance companies and derivatives, there are hundreds of them. And there are new ones every single day. You know, because we're in this field now and we do a lot of our you know, professional lives are around this DeFi, we spend a lot of the time, Simon and me, separately staring at news feeds all day as the stuff arrives. Mm. And to try and keep up with the daily sort of tsunami of new projects, and on top of that, the daily tsunami of venture capital money 
chasing those new projects is a full-time job on itself. It's unsustainable. If I have to make a prediction, and I won't be any more foolish than to say that, sometime in the near future, (laughs) many of these DeFi initiatives will shrivel and many of those cryptocurrencies have already stopped growing. They're already worth almost nothing. And there will be 10, perhaps 15 ones that have utility in different ways that will be worth investing in. There will be 10, 15, 20 different DeFi type initiatives that will have the market share and everybody else won't be there. But that doesn't mean that the industry collapses because there are still the same amount of people who want to put their funds into this new Mm. Um, this new technology. How far um, away is Duncan, this reckoning? So, so yeah, I mean, let's look at some numbers because yeah. if you look at the height of the dot-com um, bubble, right, uh, yeah. late 1999 or whenever it was, um, the, the market capitalization of, of all of the companies that fell into that, that sector on the US stock markets was, was roughly $8 trillion, if I remember correctly. Correct me if I'm wrong, Duncan. And, and, and famously, $5 trillion of value was lost in, in the burst. Yes. Um, and if you look at the entire crypto industry right now, and, and that's $1999, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if you related it to today, you could, you know, quite a bit more. You could mm-hmm. put a multiplier on it. Mm-hmm. If you look at the entire crypto industry, is worth worth less than $3 trillion at the, the time that we're recording this, this podcast. So, you know, roughly a third <laughs> of the money in, in $1999. So, so probably even less than that if you're related to and, today. And worth less than Apple currently. I mean, Apple's on 2.8. Exactly. The entire, the entire industry is worth less than. Than Apple, <laughs> you know, it's about on par with Microsoft, I think. Right. Um, so, so it, there's still so much room for growth. I think it's still actually so early, which sounds crazy because you know it's been 13 years for those of us who, who have been in the industry since the beginning. But yeah. but it really is still early, and there really is a lot of room for growth. And also, if you look at what the dot com bubble meant and and what dot com companies back then were doing. You know, it wasn't quite as revolutionary as reshaping the the, the global financial system, no, which is like you know, what the, what what cryptocurrency is doing. Yeah, exactly. It was Pets.com <laughs> and, and Jeff Bezos losing yeah. hair and selling books. And <laughs> um, so, I'm not saying it wasn't meaningful and profound, but 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 really, if you look at what what crypto's very audacious goals are, I think there's still a lot of room for this bubble to expand into before we see it coming anywhere near popping. Right. And it did take 25 years of the internet before the web came along. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, took, a, it took a long time for us to, to decide what this technology meant. And really, I see this as a continuation of that movement because uh, if you think about the, the internet and the various waves that defined it, the, the first one was really the web, the World Wide Web, brought on by, by HTTP as a protocol that enabled it. The second wave to me was the mobile wave. Brought on by the iPhone and and the you know the reimagining of of, of the of, of the smartphone industry, mm. and that that to me was the second wave. And to me, Web three is the third wave. The decentralization um, uh, of of the web um, is 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 the really the the big third wave. So in a way, we we're, we're kind of still in the same waters, <laughs> you know, um, mm. that the internet brought us in the early nineties. I wanted to come back to a point you you mentioned uh, when we were talking about banks um, and and clearly one of their big roles and and one of the most profitable roles for many banks is is that of lending. Um, They're often referred to as lenders. Um, 
you mentioned that you, Simon, don't need uh, the bank to loan you money anymore because you have ways of of, uh, of lending money. Uh, can you just maybe expand a little bit on what you meant by that and uh, and, and w- whether you see the role of, of, of traditional banks as lenders going away at some point? Mm, absolutely. So what's very popular at the moment, especially in the Ethereum ecosystem, is uh, lending from protocols like Compound or Aave, where you can use your cryptocurrency as collateral. I think that's that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand about uh, cryptocurrency holders at the moment. They think that we're all speculators and traders and trying to get rich quick. What they don't understand is, <laughs> is that we're our own banks and we're never going to sell our, our tokens because we don't have to. Yeah, And the reason for that is we have these protocols like Compound or Aave. So let's use a practical example. Let's say I need 50,000 Rand to pay my bills this month and I you know, don't have any money in the bank and I have to access it from the world of crypto. I can take one Ethereum, which is worth about 50,000 Rand at the moment. I can go to Compound and I can give the protocol my um, Ethereum as collateral. And then I can lend out up to the full value of that collateral. I probably don't want to take the full amount so that I don't get liquidated. and won't get into the technicalities of that. But um, I, I want to ideally be over-collateralized, which is fairly simple to understand. Um, and I take out a loan in a stable coin from that protocol. Um, and I go and I cash that out to Luno or Vela. So I've got 50,000 Rand in my bank account and I can go and pay my bills. What's happening is the Ethereum that I put into that protocol um, I still have a token that represents that collateral um, and my Ethereum is now locked into Compound's market. So Compound can go and lend my Ethereum out um, to other people um, and I will pay interest on the loan that I've taken out in the stable coin that I've chosen to do it in, but I'll also earn interest on my collateral, which is being lent out to, to other users. I'll also earn Compound's own token, their governance token. I will earn incrementally the longer that the loan is, is there for. So I'm incentivized to, to almost keep the loan you know, going for a little bit longer so that I can earn that. And by the way, this is all metered by the second. So I can take out the loan for minutes if I wanted to, and the interest would be calculated on based on that time frame, and so would my rewards. Mm. Um, there's also the concept of flash loans, which is mind-blowing. We'll maybe get into that later. Um, so now off I go, pay my bills. My Ethereum is earning me a little bit of income, and I'm paying interest that probably offsets it and then some. Um, skip forward a year, and let's imagine that the price of Ethereum has climbed to 150,000 Rand. So it's been a phenomenal year, and Ethereum's now worth three times what it was. Well, I can go and settle my loan and buy back my Ethereum for the price I took the loan out at. So... Uh, I can go and pay back 50,000 rands worth of stablecoin and get my Ethereum back, which is now worth 150,000 rand. Or I can go and lend out more because my collateral is worth more now. So now I can go and lend another 50,000 rand to pay next month's bills or you know whatever the case may be. Conversely, if Ethereum has lost its value and it's now worth only you know, 25,000 rand, so 50% mm. of its value has been lost, uh, I can just walk away from my loan and I'll be liquidated and my collateral's gone. So be it. Um, yeah. But really, I can do this all without a financial institution, without an intermediary, without having to, to sell my crypto, if you will, uh, and on my own speed, my own terms. And that's just one way that you can do loans on the blockchain. There's some loan uh, protocols where they aren't collateralized at all, and the community decides whether or not you are a good borrower and you have a rating system like Uber where you know it's out of whatever <laughs> the metric is, and that decides what your interest rates are. There are flash loans where you don't need any collateral. You get a free loan so long as you pay it back with interest in, 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 in a single block of transactions. We can maybe get into the technicalities of that because it's fairly mind-blowing. So there are various ways that this can be done. 
um, but none of them involve a financial intermediary. Just, just to add to this, there's a yeah. transaction I'm involved in now as a Simon. I owe money, quite a lot of money. Uh, I have Ether um, lodged. I am going to borrow against that Ether at the interest rate of 0%. Let me repeat that. I'm taking out a very large loan yep. at 0%. My only cost is 0.62%, the value of the loan, a one-time cost of 0.62%. I'm taking out the cash. I'm giving it to my creditor. Done. And it takes all of 15 seconds to do this, literally. Um, you put that in front of a traditional banker, and they're going to fall over. Mm. But banks, banks are traditionally, and not traditionally, they are very heavily regulated because, um, to a large extent, they, they're there to protect consumers. I imagine a lot of the stuff that's happening in the DeFi, DeFi world is at the consumer's risk, or am I missing the point here? Yes, it, it, it is at the consumer's risk. Mm. That the, the, what they're protecting the consumers against in the tra traditional finance world is a long and um, <laughs> um, sizzling history of theft in the tra financial <laughs> world. You just go back to 1929 and the stock market crash and yep. shenanigans were there. But they're protecting the consumers against bad actors. There is consumer risk. Within the DeFi world, it is different kind of risk. You've got to, there is a risk that the underlying protocol, which is a piece of code, has a bug in it. That's the biggest risk at all. And that some bad guy will see the bug and drain the accounts. Right. That has happened. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference in the profile of the risks. I want to talk about this for a second because a lot of people you know, read about crime uh, in, in, in DeFi. It turns out that it is... Fairly difficult to commit a crime in the world of DeFi and not be noticed. And that's because it's an open ledger. So as soon as you steal coins, they end up in a wallet and hundreds of thousands of eyes are now trained on that wallet to see where that money moves. And in fact, most of the people who have stolen money in DeFi have been caught and money's been returned. In the world of traditional finance, none of this exists. There's a single, just as a single example that I like to give. Uh, in January last year, a Danish and Estonian bank conspired to steal $300 billion in one day, $300 billion in one couple of hour period on behalf of a bunch of Russian oligarchs. And they did it quietly. And it was reported later, but not too much fanfare. Somebody steals a couple of million dollars and defy it's all over the news. Mm. The world, if you want to commit crime, you do it in the world of traditional finance, not in the world of cryptocurrency. So yes, there is risk, but it's not the same sort of risk as in the traditional world. Very interesting. I was, I was actually going to ask about the illicit flow of money because the banks always put themselves forward as, as, as gatekeepers. And, 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 and uh, I mean, we've seen it in the case of the Gupta corruption and the role the banks have been playing in closing bank accounts and preventing that illicit flow of funds. Um, are, are you saying that, that um, the, the crooks won't simply move across to, to DeFi and cryptocurrencies and other non-traditional forms of finance to launder their money? So I can jump in there, uh, yeah. Duncan. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency is a lot of, uh, especially politicians who really don't understand the space or the technology or anthropology or people or anything seemingly, um, <laughs> have, 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 you know, suggested that, that crypto is God's gift to criminals. And actually, it's quite the opposite for several okay. reasons. Okay. Firstly, when you transact, you have to do so in the real world with real people. And so, for example, if you look at what's currently happening at the time of recording with the, Russia's illegal invasion of the Ukraine, um, 
a lot of a lot of politicians in the West suggested that uh, Russians might use cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, and we we're just not seeing that happen. And the reason is that it doesn't matter that they can get their money into to Bitcoin or Ethereum. That might help them, you know, get away from um, the erosion of value in their, their state currency. But transact with anybody you know yeah, yeah the yeah. ruble but bitcoin is an oligarch in the uk now because people won't sell it to them they sanction so whether they pay with bitcoin or ham sandwiches or rubles doesn't matter nobody wants their money so they're not going to take it from them so you know it, that's not happening what mm-hmm. is happening is that the ukrainian government has tweeted out um, its own bitcoin and ethereum addresses to raise funds from the world yeah. and has uh, i haven't checked today but 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 as of yesterday morning raised 150 million dollars in donations from the world um, not only that, but 60% of their suppliers have been willing to accept crypto um, from the Ukrainian government in exchange for bulletproof vests, helmets, tourniquets, lunch packs, you know, the kind of defensive equipment that they, that, mm. that they, they feel is ethical to be buying with that money. Um, and and that's a, it's a, been a beautiful example of, of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency being used for something very positive yeah. and not being God's gift to people fleeing sanctions and, and to <laughs> criminals. You know, as, as Stephen was alluding to, as he said, you know, the, the traditional financial system is where you want to be as a criminal. It's opaque. Nobody can spy on you, <laughs> including <laughs> authorities. It's very easy to hide money and launder money and make it look like you're doing business when you aren't. Um, cash is fantastic. You know, <laughs> if you're yeah. a Mexican drug lord, you can plaster it into your walls and bury it in your garden and pack it into suitcases. Um, and in fact, HSBC redesigned their their, their teller kiosks in, in Mexico famously in the 90s so that they were the exact size of a Samsonite carry-on case so that drug lords could literally hand cash over through, you know, <laughs> over into their bank accounts. And yes, they get fined for it, whatever. Yeah. Um, but what about, but really what about that, privacy focus? What about privacy focused uh, cryptocurrencies like Monero, for example? Is that not where the criminals are going? I mean, they, they might be inclined to. Um, that's where we are seeing regulators and exchanges stepping in and, and delisting a lot of those privacy coins. Oh, yeah. There are, uh, there's a lot of utility for privacy coins because if you're a hedge fund, for example, and you want to make a transaction into something where your competitors aren't able to survey you, privacy coins are a very good reason to, you know, or a very good way to do that. So privacy coins have utility as well. And we can have a, a philosophical discussion about whether or not privacy is a um, is a, a sort of a, a human right. You know, for the same reason that we have doors on public toilets, you should be able to do some transactions in in, in privacy. But but even there, um, there's a there's an eventual output that's traceable, and there are you know firms like Chain Analysis and Elliptical mm. that even if you're using Z, Zcash or Monero. They might not be able to see all the hops in between, but they'll still be able to catch you on on the in and outs of of the network. Um, so I, I think I think those privacy coins exist in a kind of a Goldilocks zone for privacy for me, where um, you know they're not going to make it so easy that your friends can snoop on your transactions and cause you trouble for doing something that they might think is right. you know whatever touchy uh but but if authorities want to trace your transactions they'll still be able to do so with a privacy coin probably more easily than they would be able to through the traditional banking system so um i think but but with the exception of privacy coins which actually have have if you look at their market capitalizations they don't have the level of adoption no they don't nowhere near Mm -hmm. the level of a bitcoin or or an ethereum 
um, and and there um, there've been forensic audits on on um, blockchain activity. And if you look at the percentage of transactions in the crypto world that can be attributed to crime, it's infinitesimally smaller as a proportion than what you see in the traditional financial system. As we're all almost out of time, but I, I wanted to uh, just squeeze in one last question for both of you. Um, I think a lot of people um, have heard, at least heard of the term decentralized finance by now. Um, but I think a lot of people, uh, you know, haven't even invested in their first cryptocurrency investment. And they've, they kind of hear all this terminology flying around and they might read your book and say, well, you know, this is, the world is changing. Um, what should they, how much attention should, should your ordinary guy, your, your, you know, the guy who owns a local spa, for example, or, you know, your, your mother, anybody, um, how much attention should someone be paying to this stuff? I mean, the suggestion in your book is that this is fundamentally going to change the world. Um, does the ordinary man in the street uh, need to be paying much more attention to this stuff than they are at the moment, in your view, Simon? Um, you know, I think uh, the answer in short is, is, is not necessarily, <laughs> you know, the, the normal person in the street is, is going to end up adopting this stuff sooner or later, just like they ended up with a smartphone sooner or later without yeah. knowing how smartphones worked or how significant the announcement of the iPhone was at the time necessarily. Sure. Um, but I do think that there, for many people, there's an intellectual curiosity, uh, you know, and I think particularly for your audience, Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of interesting opportunities here. Uh, both for individuals and for organisations, um, and I do think that if you work into if you if you work in the financial industry or any industry adjacent to it, which is everything, <laughs> uh, this is going to touch you in some way. Um, and so, whether you have the intellectual curiosity or, or or not, it's probably worth finding out or deciding for yourself what it might mean for you or your business or, or your industry. Mm. Um, so, I think from that perspective, absolutely, this is something that that we're all going to be using in the future. I believe. Um, it's endlessly fascinating, which is why people like Stephen and I are inclined to write books about it. <laughs> um, and, we uh, could talk all afternoon on this podcast about it. Yeah, it really absolutely, is a fascinating there you subject. Go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Stephen, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so I, I have a, a beautiful use case to prove this example of people using this. It is true that for the average man on the street now, it seems as though this technology is to surrounded by jargon and, and mm. complex interfaces and uh, the technology is inscrutable. It seems like that would be a barrier, but I must just point you to El Salvador. El Salvador legalized Bitcoin. El Salvador's population is um, not educated. It's very much like rural El Salvador. It's very much like rural South Africa. They're very low levels of education. People don't finish school. 60% mm. of the citizens there learned how to download a wallet onto the phone, learned how to use the wallet, pay for their goods at Bitcoin. It's not that difficult when you get to that sort of level. If it is a larger amount than just the payment activity of using a smart phone as a payment device, by the way, we want, one can also look at China, which is not using Bitcoin, but is using cell phones for very, very small payments. So that is the mechanism of payment. So I don't think that the technological hurdle or the jargon hurdle in the long run, if there is enough value to be had from the new service, people use how, learn how to use it. If it is a larger amount where somebody says, you know what, I'll, I, I'd kind of like to like put 10% of my what I've saved up into cryptocurrency. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to learn this shit. I don't have the time. Then I'd suggest you phone, you know, Simon Dingle's company's Venox is built for people <laughs> who want to put uh, their funds into a managed fund, a managed crypto fund like, 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 Simon, like Simon's company. 
or for the banks who will certainly be offering um, crypto assets. You don't have to learn that stuff to put money in to invest. Thanks, Simon. Stephen. Simon will Checks pay- in the mail. Yeah, Simon will be paying you in Ethereum immediately after this podcast. <laughs> I was I was actually going to ask just as we end, Stephen. I mean, if if you if you really if if you've read this book and you you, you um, believe that this is the future of finance um, and you want to profit on it now, um, what should you be doing? Should you be investing in smart contract focused cryptocurrencies? What what should you do as an investor? So, so this is the point at which you say this is not financial advice. <laughs> We don't get ourselves into trouble. Let's start with the uh, if somebody <laughs> just if somebody just simply wants to dip a toe in the water of cryptocurrency by Bitcoin and Ethereum, is that's it. Those are the two market leaders. Those right. are not going away. And from our perspective, those are on a long-term rising price appreciation. If you want to dip your toe into DeFi, read our book. Here it is. Beyond Bitcoin, <laughs> Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks by... Stephen Boyke, Sidley, and Simon Dingle. Gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights. Uh, this book was well worth a read. Go grab it. It's available in your local bookstore on, on Audible, and uh, it's also available as an ebook on the Kindle, right? Kindle, take a lot, all of them, anywhere of you them. go to get your books. Any, yeah. Anywhere you want to get your books. Yeah. Great. Simon, Stephen, thank you for your time. Much appreciate it. Thank you for talking to Tech Central.